0: Hello, welcome to the third installment of Head Voice Voices, the alumni podcast for Headway School. This episode is a recording of an alumni webinar focusing on the topic of diversity, intersectionality, and representation in Hollywood and the entertainment industry. It features a candid discussion with alumni Daniel Wu, class of 92, Cameron Johnson, class of 2003, and Krista Marie Yu, class of 2006. The panel is moderated by entertainment writer, Olivia Truffaut Wong, class of 2009, and longtime upper school drama and English teacher, Andy Spear. We would like to note that this episode contains a mention of teen suicide, so listener discretion is advised. Good
1: evening, everyone. My name is Rachel Skiffer, and I am the new head of school at Head Royce. I am thrilled this evening to welcome you to our alumni webinar, discussing the very timely and important topics of diversity, race, and intersectionality and how they are represented or not in the entertainment industry. Tonight, you will have the opportunity to hear from several very prominent Head Royce alumni working in the media and entertainment industry, including one of your hosts, Olivia Trufo Wong from the class of 2009. Joining her as co-host is our own Andy Spear, beloved longtime English and drama teacher. Olivia is currently a freelance entertainment editor and writer. Her work as a culture critic, mostly focused on Asian-Americans and Hollywood and diversity and pop culture, has also been published in Refinery29, Polygon, and Bustle. She currently covers entertainment and celebrity news at The Cut. Olivia and Andy will be speaking with our panelists, Dan Wu, class of 1992, Cameron Johnson, class of 2003, and Krista Marie Yu, class of 2006. I am so grateful that they could be with us this evening, and I hope you are just as excited as I am to hear what they have to say. Welcome, everyone.
2: Hi, everyone.
3: Hey, folks. Um,
4: thank, I'm, it's, it is really wonderful that you could all join us today, and, and uh, Olivia include you in in that group because uh, this is a, this is quite a group of alums um, that are here on the screen, and it's uh, it's a real honor for those of us who work at the school to um, to get to have some time with you and and hear some reflections on. Where your journeys have taken you especially because they've taken you to such impressive places Um, and so Olivia I think you and I have the 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 great honor tonight of getting to um, have a conversation with these three folks Um, but I include you in that group as well so it's four four people that I have the honor of spending some time with and we all do honestly Um, so yeah I think this is gonna be a great hour
2: well thank you I'm also very excited Um, and I guess I'll start it off by introducing are starting to introduce our panel. So first we have Daniel Wu, an award-winning actor, producer, and director of over 70 television and film productions, whew, including AMC's Into the Badlands and um, HBO's Westworld, Tomb Raider, and Reminiscence. Uh, in 2021, Dan worked with fellow actor Daniel day Kim to raise awareness of anti-Asian hate crimes in Oakland and beyond.
4: Yeah. It's- and joining uh, Dan is also Cameron Johnson. Um, and Cameron most recently co-created and executive produced the series, Tom Swift. Uh, it's a spinoff of the hit series, Nancy Drew on The CW. Prior to that, he was the producer of the Peacock limited series, Best Man, as well as working on Empire for several seasons. And in addition to his work in television, he's writing an original comedy feature called, I Feel For You for Universal Pictures and Will Packer is producing. Welcome Cameron.
5: Hi, it's very weird to have Andy Spear read my IMDB credits, but here we are.
4: (laughs) It's pretty cool, honestly, I I gotta tell you.
2: Um, And finally, we have Krista Marie Yu. She graduated 2006. I'm sorry, I forgot to mention, Daniel Wu graduated in 92. Um, And uh, Krista just recently wrapped a series regular role on the upcoming Steve Levitan series reboot, streaming now on Hulu. Um, it's very good. You should all go watch it. All episodes are out now. Uh, she is best known for her role as Jen in Tim Allen's The Last Man Standing and Molly in Ken Jong's Dr. Ken. Uh, she also had mem- oh, excuse me. numerous memorable parts in um, Nickelodeon's The Thundermans, Freeforms with Shipbirth. Birth. She is a proud ambassador for Lupus LA and Saving Our Daughter's Cinderella program. Some of her favorite organizations are Apex for Youth, Christy Yamaguchi's Always Dream Foundation, Inc., and St. Jude's. Um, Krista is passionate about diverse representation and looks up to our ordinary mentors who have paved the way. Um, and also fun fact, I did see her star as Sally Bowles in the upper school production of Cabaret in, I believe 2005 or four? Wow. Yeah, in 2005. Um, well, thank you, Krista. <laughs>
6: thank you, Olivia, thank you for having me.
2: Um, Okay, so to start off, I have a question for everyone. Um, When was the first time you saw yourself represented on screen? And Daniel, I'll start with you.
3: Oh, man. Um, I'm older. I'm much older than everybody here. So for me, I think that most kind of indelible images I remember growing up was watching um, some of the John Hughes movies and seeing the long Duck Dong character. It was this uh, really stereotypical uh, foreign exchange student who didn't speak English well and he was a nerd and all that kind of stuff. And I remember watching that growing up and going, hey, that doesn't represent me. But I did grow up watching also foreign films, which were films from Hong Kong and China. And so I saw Bruce Lee, Jet Lee, Jackie Chan and people like that that I also looked up to as well. But I had to look to foreign films to be able to find that.
5: I would say probably Dion and Clueless. Um, uh, no, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen, I mean, awesome. I don't think until like I was actually creating a show, I ever saw people like me on TV. There are shows about gay black men, there's Noah's Ark. I think I was, I think, but I think honestly, probably the closest I've gotten to it in terms of like personality wise probably be Sex in the City. I think when you look at people, when you look at people, when you, when you, that show is essentially a show about a, a circle mm-hmm. of gay men who happen to be women. And so that was pretty fascinating. And when and with regard to race, I think there's sort of like Fresh Prince, uh, to the to an extent, the the Cosby show, those were all able to tell stories about black people that felt like relatable. Um and I think, and then when I finally and when Blackish finally came out, I was like, oh my God, they're writing about my childhood. Uh, and then I immediately had to stop watching it. Um but yeah, that's the those are the ones that that spoke to me.
6: Um I think for me it was Trini on the Power Rangers. She was so cool. Um, and then Christiane because I would see her on screen um, and just representing somebody who followed her dreams and made it happen.
4: Dan, maybe following up on the your thoughts about uh, looking to foreign films, mm-hmm. you know, your career launched actually in China, and we were curious what your thoughts might be about how that trajectory impacted um, your success as an actor here in the U.S.?
3: Sure. I, I should expand on what I said earlier. It's like I was trying to say basically that there really wasn't someone that represented me or was like me because I either had to look at foreign films that were foreign Asians and not Asian Americans or grossly exaggerated you know, stereotypes of Asian American males on, on screen. And so it wasn't until recently in the past few years that you saw thought to see a little more balanced version of that. But yeah, I started my career in 1997 in Hong Kong. And I had actually never thought of being in the film business. I was—I uh, studied architecture. I graduated from Head Royce with this idea of studying architecture. I studied five years at the University of Oregon. I knew I wanted to be in a creative industry. And as I was going through my education in, in, in Oregon, I realized architecture may not be for me because I did so many internships and realized the profession was maybe about 2% creative and mostly administrative and managerial. And so I was looking for that, that uh, creative energy that I had in school. And so when I arrived in Hong Kong, I was there just for a college graduation trip. And I was gonna be there for two or three months and then head back to the States. And then I was actually scouted on the street to do a TV commercial. So prior to that, I never thought of someone like me being on screen because I never saw it in the States. It was never uh, something anyone desired. And so I never even thought that that was an option for me. you know. And it wasn't until Hong Kong people you know, other Chinese people saw it in me and brought me out and put me on screen and it made me realize that I could have that potential to do that. Um, and it was a you know very steep learning curve. I had to learn how to act and speak in Chinese and act in Chinese in, in, in a very short amount of time. But actually, if I, if I didn't have that experience, I don't think I would have toughed it out. I look at my other Asian-American colleagues like Sun Kang and all of these guys that have been doing it for 10 or 15 years who really had to, they're all were fighting for the same role. And there was a really badly stereotyped role. And if I had to do that for the amount of time that they did, I think I would have given up. You know, I was empowered very early on. Um, I was given lead roles very early on. And I was, I was, I was told that I could be a star very early on. I didn't have to struggle and fight for it in, in the same way that my fellow Asian American actors had to. And so I think again, it 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 empowered me. But again, I think I feel I think for for my other Asian-American fellow actors, uh, it was a very tough road for them to get to where we are today.
6: It's interesting yeah, sure. like, how the media like teaches us what we think we can and can't do, because mm. um, I would say like growing up, yes, there was Trini, yes, there was Christian Gucci and the Toilet Club, of course. But it's funny you said that clueless is something you grew up t- um, to wanting to be like, because for me, it was Cher. Cher is mm-hmm. not Asian, Cher is white. Mm-hmm. And I realized um, over time. Now that I look back is, oh, I wanted to be assimilated and white because I wanted to be cool and beautiful and looked at in that way, because there wasn't that on screen as somebody who is Asian American.
5: Interesting. I never looked at those characters and said, I want to be the white characters. I said, oh, well, there just should be a black one. Um, I think what's interesting about the being a person of color, especially being a black person, means you're probably never going to see yourself on screen unless until you, until you have some modicum of control. And as a consequence, you have to be able to see yourself in any story. So you watch a black you can watch a black TV show, you can watch Empire, and be like, ah, I see some similarities to that, and I understand those cultural references. But we also have to be by quadrilingual in that we can watch Clueless and understand that it is and understand what it's based on and see ourselves in those characters as well. It's, it, there's sort of a, a universal understanding that is required for survival uh, in order to, like that others don't necessarily have, shall we say. But also I just love Dion's quotes.
6: They're great, those <laughs> knee highs.
2: Um, so Daniel, um, you mentioned, you know, that you might not have been able to tough it out if you had started in America, I wonder, what are some of the major differences you've noticed of roles that you've maybe been offered or asked to read for in you know Hong Kong versus when you came to Hollywood?
3: Oh, stark, stark differences. I mean, I was a, I was a leading man in Hong Kong. And so I did, like you said, in, in over 65 films over there. And then what I'm asked to do here is slightly different. It's character roles, um, which I'm fine doing as an actor. I love working on character roles, but not many people have asked me to be leading men and um because there isn't a space for that for asian american males right now at the moment and also there's this thing where you actually have noticed this quite clearly in uh american media is that asian american male is emasculated in a lot of ways and so you see um kind of the nerdy character you see the uh you know um not tough guy you see the scared the, the engineer and all those guys but you don't see the hero you don't see much of that and so you know, we tried to change that a little bit with the TV show that I did which was called Into the Badlands, right? We we're trying to take sort of the martial arts stereotype but flip it on its head and put it in an American situation and um, in a dystopian future. And and that lasted for about three years, but then we were canceled quickly. And, and, and you don't, you're don't, you not seeing any of that anymore on screen. You see it in maybe in Warrior, the show Warrior, but they are still immigrant Chinese. They're not seen as part of like American fabric, uh, Americans, you know. And so that's a big struggle that um, to try and change perceptions of what we can be and what we can be on screen. So yeah, huge difference. I mean, I was I was an action hero in Asia on the screen, and then here I'm 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 sort of doing more, uh, like I said, character and supporting roles.
4: Christopher, maybe we can pivot to you for a sec. Oh,
2: go
6: ahead. What do you I said I still see you as an action hero.
2: <laughs> um, Tomb Raider.
3: Love. Yep, yep. That was one of the rare ones, uh, Chris. We're gonna.
4: But what if we swing to you for a moment and sort of follow in that in that vein, where obviously you've been all in the U.S. and that's so you've had sort of almost the opposite experience. And we're curious to know, like, when you started, it was ten years ago or so. What kind of roles did you see then for Asian women? What was you know what was what's been sort of your trajectory?
6: Um, well, more than anything, I'm very grateful for the path that I've had. Um, and I do think that going to Head Royce really taught me hard work and diligence and um, really believing in myself. Um, So thank you for that. Uh, but also it was never expected for me to become an actress. I mean, we went to Ed Rice, where it's, um, a very specific type of upbringing, a very specific type of expectation. Um, and my, my <laughs> particular class was ultra smart. Like they all had, there was a class created for them for math. Um, a lot of them went to like Cal during high school and I just never, um, cut it in terms of academics. And so I fell into loving, what um, I thought I was good at, which was um, acting. And my mom pulled out the fist guide and I went to all the auditions, not realizing I was auditioning for um, conservatories. And then I landed in a conservatory and um, didn't really have to do um, write essays. (laughs) And that was awesome. Um, And um, really learned so much about myself. And um, from there, I was also what I think was the worst person in my class. I had zero expectation toward um, getting anything. I was the only person in my class who never had a lead. Um, they always told me at school to like do accents. So I didn't, I didn't really expect anything. And I came out to LA and I uh, wanted to be near my grandma. That's why I moved to LA and not New York. And um, I was always told, you know, if you want to act, you have to love it. And um, you can't have another plan B. And i really didn't have a plan b um i was going through some health things and so it, it almost felt like you know that kind of um you only live once kind of choice and um i was hostessing i was babysitting in all the audition rooms every every single girl was an asian girl um who are all <laughs> incredibly talented and so, when it came to you know getting a couple commercials and then getting a couple guest stars and getting a couple um, one-liners, I would I would kill myself over all of those um, because that's the only choice you have. Like luck gets you so far, but working really hard is what I've discovered gets me the furthest. Um, and gratitude. And then Dr. Ken came along, and it was actually I think a, a second release. I think they'd already gone through the final final rounds. And so I got really, really, really lucky. And there were three of us left. Um, and I just remember getting the call while I was hostessing. And then I kept my job for the pilot in the first half of the season, because <laughs> you never know. It's a very nonlinear path. Um, but I'm really grateful for the lessons I've learned in terms of not just how I want to be, just not just living my dream of being an actor, but the impact that one can make as somebody who exists in a world of the public eye and um the stories that we can tell you know you know everybody writes every not everybody sorry that came out wrong people write in a specific way and we have as actors the choice in how we want to take that writing and make it into something and make it into something um because a lot of people are like oh krista like did you did you feel like you're just doing a bunch of stereotypes like even last man standing like my character had an accent. And it's like, no, a, a stereotype is only if the joke is on the accent, the joke is on the person. You have the power and the opportunity and the expansion, the creative expansion to to develop the backstory and to develop a actual person with all these different layers that might not be shown on screen, but um, but will fuel your work and be reflected in that way, if that makes sense. Did that even answer your question?
4: <laughs> absolutely.
6: <laughs> okay, well, and here I am.
4: Yeah, <laughs> I absolutely.
2: I, yes, I was gonna ask about the accent. Um, and I guess I wanna know how you went about creating that space for yourself to make the character, to like take what you were written, like you said, and choosing to sort of elevate it beyond a stereotype and beyond what it could have been.
6: Mm-hmm. I hired a Mandarin tutor. Um, I created opportunities where, you know, they came at me, they're like, oh, well, we're going to have her from Hong Kong. And I was like, are you sure? Because speaking Cantonese is going to be really, really difficult to do because Google Translate doesn't have that. fine. Like, <laughs> Turned out it was really hard. They could never do it. They, you know, it's funny with um, other specific non-Asian parts, they kind of expect you to already speak Chinese. Whereas like, I don't know if this is true, but like, I feel like if Tom Cruise was like playing German, they brought in a translator, they brought in somebody to teach him German. Oh. And so I was like calling all my uncles, my aunts, my mom, my dad, she was calling her a hairdresser. I learned Chinese, I learned Mandarin and I learned Cantonese because sometimes the episode would be in Mandarin. Sometimes it'd be in Cantonese. And the way I justified it for myself, no one else knew this, was my character Jen Jen went to international school. So, and her dad was really hard on her. And so anytime she was fighting her dad with her dad, her dad made her speak in Mandarin. So she knew she could be universal. <laughs> <laughs> she wanted to be, so you know they're. I'm always sorry, they
5: didn't even words. bother to like check the language. There, like, the writers didn't even bother to make sure that like what they were. Wow,
6: I think it was. um There's always a way of justifying something. Is how I come at it, right. and so that wasn't in my necessary power to be like, excuse me, like this is how you should write. <laughs> so like I just made it work, and I think that is what we can do. And um, I think they really believed in me. They really believed in the story for Jen. She had a dad, her dad had a girlfriend and she even tried to like, her dad was trying to, um, I think protest protest in Asia as well. So there, there were really a lot of attempts to try to, for this specific audience, which is a Tim Allen conservative audience to say, hey, look, um, We love everybody and we want to treat this young girl who looks different, is from a different country, like somebody we love. It's interesting because a lot of the fan base was like, she's too loud. She should be more quiet. She should be nicer. Um, And luckily like nobody else, the writers didn't care. They supported me and they wanted, and Tim supported me and they wanted this young Asian girl. To be loud and snarky and um everyone to be okay with that and to love her anyway and so hopefully that is the through line behind it and with the accent in particular i worked really really hard at it um i'm sure there were some people who had problems with it but um the most i can do is come at it with the truth and love that i had
4: these are, these are compelling stories I, I, as we knew they would be um <laughs> I feel like talking about writers leads us directly now to you, Cameron. Um, And thinking about um, kind of the same question from your perspective, which is that uh, we're making an assumption here, which is that you've been in a number of different writers rooms and that most likely, I mean, I think you said it yourself, like you don't, you haven't seen yourself necessarily on the screen until you were able to, to... have the pen in your hand and also the sort of the status to do that. And so we were curious sort of what, where along the way did you feel like, when was it that you felt like you could actually start contributing your most authentic voice and and sort of what was that journey like for you? You
5: know it's interesting. I started off when I, I went to USC. I graduated, I, thinking that I was going to be a lawyer. I quickly, uh, well, was actually, trying to avoid being a lawyer. I thinking that I was going to get a degree in business and economics. And I'm not going to run you through this entire life story of mine. But um, college, thanks to Head Royce, the only thing I will thank Head Royce for is uh, I got a really good education, and USC was easy. And so as a consequence, I t- I started taking too many classes uh, because I was like, where is the anxiety? Where is the pressure? I don't. Where is Dr. Emilo like slowly dropping my essay grade? <laughs> Um, uh, and so I got a, uh, I, I, I took a screenwriting class and I, and in that, I mean, this was in like 2004, 2005, I realized I was like, okay, this is what I want to do with my life. And I started trying to write and everything that I, and I you know, I studied it. I have, a, I minored in it there. It is a good school for that sort of thing. And what I very quickly discovered is that I would write, I wanted to be Ryan Murphy. I wanted to be Alan Ball. I wanted to write Nip Tuck and, you know, those sorts of soaps and those sorts of things. And I was honestly really scared to write about Black people because there were no premium Black TV shows. There were comedies and like, but... The, quite as it's kept, the vast majority of their shows, especially the early ones, were written by white people. There weren't Black TV writers, really, until the early 90s. Um, and even then, it was, very rare, it was very rare for a Black person to be in a position of power, to be an executive producer, to be a showrunner. Um, and so, but the problem I would have is I would write these scripts about like, oh, this one's about an escort agency, and this one's about, uh, you know, sports agents in Arizona. And I would go into these meetings with reps, and they'd be like, so tall, funny, gay, black guy, why did you write this? Like, what is this? Like, how is this connected to you? And I was like, I enjoy sporting. I've, I've watched a football match or two. And they, uh, and so, and it just wasn't working. And so I looked around in about 2010 at the people I knew who were getting over. So, people who were like Lena Waithe or Justin Simeon, or sort of those are the people who I sort of began my career in entertainment around. And they were all writing about themselves. They were writing like things that were super duper black. And so, the first thing that I ever did was I was a, I had been an SAT tutor. That was my version of hostessing, which I kept doing until my first my first season of Empire was over. And I was like, okay, I have the job. <laughs> like, I can afford this. I can't quit. I'll, I can finally quit. Uh, and as I was, and I decided that rather than write another pilot, that's about, that's not about me. I, I would try to pivot to writing things that were about my own life. So the first thing that I wrote is... I was, I was like, and if I realized if I could also, if I could make myself a little bit internet famous, that would probably help. So I made a blog called, uh, I wrote a blog and it was called a social experiments blog. The first one was called is okay Cupid for white people. Um, uh, I had spent a year on OkCupid okay trying to get a date. I had failed. I was like, but I'm cute. I don't, you talk about being scouted on the street, Daniel. That happened to me too. Uh, <laughs> and what I was nursing, I was like, wait a second, why, why is this not happening on the internet? And, you know, I, the Lord spoke to me and said, Cameron, I bet you money this is because you're black. And so I asked a straight friend of mine who lived in Boston if I could make an identical, if I could use his pictures for a profile. I made an identical one. I didn't send a single message. I just put it up and saw what happened. And I got 300 times the incoming calls that in one week than I had as myself in an entire year. And that article that I wrote in the living room of my shitty one-bedroom apartment in mid-city Los Angeles uh went viral once a year for five years like every year it would i would start seeing comments again like oh god i guess people are lonely again uh i guess we're back on reddit and from there i realized okay cool so what i've been trying to do is trying to write like other people and what i need to be doing is writing like me and doing shit that only i can do so the first pilot that i wrote is called uh uh, the first pilot that i wrote in that vein is called me in high school and it is about the rather hilarious day um, that I tried to kill myself in high school. It's very funny. Uh, and I've gone to lots of therapy. And so, but that was the the joke that I was going, that was the tone that I was going for. Is like, how can you do something really sad, but also do something that's really funny and also something that's deeply personal. That got me my first manager, that got me my first job, and then... I wrote a pilot called Side Pieces, which is about being a side hoe, sorry parents, um, which is something I know nothing about. Uh, Mistress, if you're not up on the internet slang, uh, and how dare you accuse me of being such a thing. Uh, But I wrote that and those two things got me my first job on a show called Zoe Ever After, which was a half hour multi-camera comedy. I got that job because they needed a black gay guy. Like they needed a black gay guy to be in that room because there was a black gay character. And initially I was offended, but then I was like, okay, similarly to what Krista was saying, like. I can make this work and I can show them that I can make this story work and then I can make it differently. I I can make the story real, which is what they want. And then I can, once I've done that, I can show you, I can show the people that I work for that I'm doing other, that I can do other things. I did that, that show got canceled. And then I, the show that i had always wanted to create though, is about... I don't know. So the Black elite of the Bay Area, I'd always wanted to do a show called Rich, Horrible Black People, uh, is what I called it at the time. And it ended up being a pilot called White People Problems that I sold to Bravo in 2017. And that got me, that, that script has gotten me every single job I've ever had since. Um, so, what I, so, so to answer your question, I realized that my voice was the thing that gave me power early. And I was just, what I feel like I've been doing is marching my way towards having the ability to actually do me like not do like a watered down version of it or to do something that is more, or to just contribute. But like, there's a day when you get to be the person who's in charge and you get to be the one who's defining the voice of the show. And I will continue to hone that for the rest of my life and career.
3: I think Cameron um, highlighted a really good point there that early on, like we all, I think all of us think that coming into the business in Hollywood means that we have to uh, look at it through the white lens. Right, mm-hmm. and we're seeing now that it's no longer the case that no longer you have to do that and that your unique voice is what is special to you and that's what you know we have to cherish and and keep doing.
5: Yeah, the idea that and I remember I tried to write my college essay about like there's the idea yeah. what, Fuck it. A thing that happened to me often at HeadRoyce is that I would be, I live, I grew up in the hills behind the school. And so I remember one day a student's mom was driving me home. She drives out and she tries to turn left and go down to like Fruitvale MacArthur. And I'm like, no, we live up there. And every turn she kept being like, wait, but can we, like, where do I go? Like, when, when are we going to go to the, the flatlands? I was like, no, we go up all the <laughs> way to the top of the hill. We go to the top of the hill. We get to my house. She lets me out. This woman is in shock. This is the same woman who had said to my mom repeatedly, oh, Cameron's gonna get into all these schools because he's black and you know, all of that, those sort of lightly casually racist things that people trade amongst uh amongst friends. And what was fascinating is that like it 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 has been shocking to people for my entire life that there can be black people who don't play sports and do and are dysfunctional and have a degree of success that might match mm-hmm. yours. And just writing about that has been has kept me working for a long time. <laughs>
4: But, but can we? I, I would love to go back to um, what you just said, Daniel, which is that being that, that the that the 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 sort of the the leading thought is that you can, there isn't a place for your authentic selves and. and getting through to a place where maybe now it's feeling more like there is actually room for that. Yeah. Like, that that's yeah. actually what's, you know, as Cameron is saying, that's, what's getting him work. But I, I want to just push on that just a teeny bit and say, is that, I mean, cause I, I think partly what you were saying earlier, Dan, was that actually in America, it's still like, you're still not, they're not seeing your authentic self.
3: No, no, it's not, it's not quite there yet, but it's changing. I mean, it, it Look, from when I was in grade school through college, it was the same. And all the way probably up until my 30s, it was the same for Asian-Americans especially. And, um, and you know, Joy Luck Club happened when I was in college, but then there was nothing, <laughs> nothing in between that and then let's say Crazy Rich Asians, right? Almost nothing. There was some small indie things and all that, but still there was no voice. There was still no voice for Asian-Americans. And so, or even unique Asian-American characters who we're you know, certain actors that made it through, uh, but there was no writers, there was no directors that were pushed through um, and until much later on. And so what I learned was that being in Asia, when I was in Asia, you know, where I wasn't a minority and I wasn't looked at as something different, I could just be myself, right? And so then I was, I was doing roles based on what I thought I could do and not based on a race. So I wasn't going to casting calls that were like, we need Asian guy number one or an Asian guy number two. To show up for this this casting it was just like oh daniel has this quality to play this role and i would go for that and so it empowered me to do that and that's what i was saying is like if i had to do that uh through the whole edition process in the states and go through the you know asian man one two and three i would never have been able to do it like there's no way i would have been able to do it trying to fit into someone else's box um or fit into a white gaze box of what an asian american man could should be right so that empowered me but then after 20 years of being in Asia, I realized this is not me either, because I'm, I'm an American pretending to be a local Hong Kong person. Right. And so now, I mean, there were some roles that I played like a background of Canadian or American or whatever, but most of them were local guys. Right. And so I go, okay, let's try to do something authentic back home. And I think this is the time to do it. So 2016 is when I came back for into the Badlands and we tried to, we tried to do that. And so what I did there was like, you know, the stereotype was that Asians, Asian men do kung fu, right? And although I'd done a lot of action, I'd never done kung fu on screen in Hong Kong. And uh, and so we decided to take what we knew about action filmmaking in Hong Kong and bring it over here and then make it American and make it Americanized and try and create a space that there wasn't before. And so that was sort of my attempt to be as an executive producer on the show, to bring that kind of mixed upbringing that I had that being American, but also learning a lot from the Hong Kong film industry and all the skills there and bring it back over here and create this hybrid, which is is me, but also Asian American as well.
2: Yeah, I just wanna go back to something Cameron said um, about, thank you for sharing about your experience at Head Royce. Um, And I also just wanna open it up. I mean, uh, I think most people on this call went to Head Royce. We know what it was like as Mm. Not white students, <laughs> um, and I guess I just want to know—you know—is there something about your time at Head Royce, good or bad, that you know has affected you in your career or helped you, hurt you, inspired you, drive you, drives you—you um, know—anything that you want to share or reflect on? But also, would, no pressure if you don't. I would
3: agree with Krista and that it, it did teach me to work hard and grind, but also did teach me to have a really thick skin because criticism came hard at ed royce right and so you know like mr enloe was not shy of, of doing that and, and other teachers as well and so when you get into this business you're going to be you're going to be you know criticized a lot and you have to be able to take it and understand okay where is this coming from is this coming from a personal point of view or is this really objective objective whatever and understand that and analyze that and and then and then get better you know whether that is going to be helpful or do you throw it away and go oh, this person's this is dumb and and we're going to move forward. But, you know, Head Royce actually taught me how to navigate that, the the toughness of the world in terms of um, academic and maybe more intellectual criticism and not taking it so personally and being able to move on and grow from it.
5: You know, a writer's room is essentially one of our English classes. Like it's eight nerds sitting around a table, like discussing what you've written and like, they're gonna give you notes, they're gonna give you feedback. And I think also, especially when you get into the classes that we took later or the electives, the class I took from Andy on Modern American Poetry. Um, I can still hear you reciting the, the poem about the grapes. Um, uh, but with that said, my point is that like, it, it, there's a, a degree of intellectual rigor that is required. You can see Krista can too. Uh, but it's, there's a degree of intellectual rigor that's required at that school that that, that, you will serve you well, anywhere you go and anything that you do. Um, I also think there's sort of a cultural bilinguality that I think, uh, which is not a word that, but I'm making it up, whatever, uh, a cultural, like sort of, uh, it, it requires code switching. Um, and so mm-hmm. in the right you'll mm-hmm. be able to put you in a room with a lot of people who don't look like you and don't understand your cultural explain your your experiences and explain yourself to them um and know that they may or may not listen. Uh, and I think that that puts me, I think it is an advantage on the sell on the selling side, because I think you are the majority of people who are in a position to buy TV shows and buy pilots and green light them are not black people. Um, or Asian people, for that matter, but or straight or gay people, for that matter. Uh, but so those are the things that I think I would I would take from my my headrace experience that got me there. Also, I literally did write a pilot that is set in the school, so it and that did get me a rep and a job. So I can't be too mad. <laughs>
6: um, headrace is a lot of different things for me. Um, I still have a lot of my friends from Headrace. Who I love so much, and Ravi. In fact, my little brother is still really good friends with Olivia. So through him, I get to be friends with Olivia, which has been awesome. Um, a couple things. I think um, yes, Head Royce has taught me diligence, Head Royce has taught me critical thinking, Head Royce has taught me to be able to put myself in different perspectives and understand that people can come at things from different ways. I think when it comes to yeah, criticism and rejection, I do have tough skin. Not only because of Head Royce, but because of ice skating, but also I think from one thing that I learned from Head Royce in regards to that was, oh well, what more can I do? I can do this. I can do that. I can do more. I can do more to be exactly what you need me to be, which is the top. And um, if I were to talk back to my young high school self, since I'm so old now. Um, I would say like, you know, it's not, there is no one version of that gold star. And I do think there was a lot of pressure from the heteroized culture that there is one vision of success. And um, it, it not, it's not necessarily that, it really isn't. And um, you don't have to bend over backwards and contort yourself to be what somebody else wants you to be you can be whatever you want to be because happiness is actually what matters not making somebody else happy not making your teacher happy not making your parents happy like you deserve to listen to your heart um and that being said like balance is also what's super important and realizing like career is not everything like because if you don't have it you could become very, very sad. Like I will say like anytime a show got canceled that I was on, I was very, very sad. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's more to life than that kind of validation and approval, whether it's in a relationship, whether it's in my career, whether it's from my parents. Um, And then also, uh, aside from that, I would say like my head raised teachers, including you, Mr. Sphere, have modeled um, a way of existing that is so passionate and so dedicated to what they do. And I really truly believe that you guys believed in us and believed in me. Um, and so I, I do thank you guys for that. I miss I miss a lot of you, I miss a lot of you. Just like watching you guys exist in the way that you do, being your confident selves, um, models, that it's it's great. You can be you can be weird and quirky and loving and love kids and do whatever you want to. Like I just follow by example.
1: Yeah,
3: I, I, I agree with Chris. Said my there...
6: motorcycle. I don't know <laughs> if you hear that.
3: I agree with Chris that there, there was a lot of pressure to be a certain way. Like if it was the Ivy League path, and I remember you know probably more than a third of my class went to Ivy League schools. And so if you didn't get into Ivy League school, I went to lowly University of Oregon, right. Um, you were made to feel bad about that. And it wasn't until I got there that I realized, like, same thing with Cam, it was like, oh my God, this is all easy now. Like, how do I set me up because it was really easy. But I also agree with Krista that the teachers were all very impassioned. They cared so much about everybody. Um, and that was definitely one thing that I think you could feel that love from everybody, no matter you know how annoyed they were with you at being a little you know a uh, uh, jerk in class or whatever, they still cared about you and they still care about your future, right? And so even like Mr. Brankin, I had Mr. Brankin for English. He, he he took us to Japan for a Japanese elite class. And so 16 of us went to Japan. And that was like the first time I'd really, really kind of traveled to Asia um, and thought about different possibilities outside of the United States. And I probably didn't have that experience. I probably wouldn't have been bold enough to just go to Hong Kong and go, fuck it, I'm going to live here for 20 years, you know. So things like that. and And it was very encouraging to see People like that—they were so into other cultures, right? And I think we had another teacher, uh, Miss Erin. I think she was the Chinese history teacher, um, who was very into Chinese culture and was and was, you know, she had traveled through China in the early '80s, and so she was very impassioned about Chinese culture. And so that made me proud of my own culture as well and want to explore it even more. And I and I realized, like after graduating, and even now when I meet a bunch of people my age, like Asian Americans, that. Went to high schools that did not teach any kind of history that was other than the white male lens uh, history of the United States. Um, I'm so, I'm surprised because like I for, I took it for granted that Ed Royce, although it's not fully fully balanced, we got a little bit of everything, you know, and um, and and that was very precious to have that. Like when I when I see my other friends that were in public schools or in the middle of the country somewhere. Uh, growing up, they did not get anything like that, nor did they even get love from their teachers. So it was a much, much harder upbringing from them. So having that foundation and stability to kind of springboard off of to start the rest of your life was, was great.
2: Yeah, thanks. Um, I just wanna remind attendees that we are gonna open up for a few audience questions. I know we're running out of time. So if you guys see, I think there's like a and a box you guys can um, post questions in. And feel free to, uh, yeah, post your questions there and we'll read them and and ask. Uh, But in the meantime, uh, I guess I wanna know um, for everyone if there was ever a role or, a, I mean, Krista, we already talked about the accent, but something or something in the writer's room that you had where you had to kind of put your foot down and be like, no, we're not gonna do this. We're gonna do this this way, you know, something that maybe was small or or maybe even an instance where you felt like you really couldn't say anything. I mean, Krista, you mentioned you couldn't really point out the, the Cantonese to Mandarin split. Um, and that is an awkward situation that I think a lot of people and myself included have found themselves in.
5: I, I can think of several, uh, but I think the first one was, um, uh, I was on my first, the first show, I the first show I worked on, Zoe Ever After. And the, we had written it up so I, the way that show started is that like every time they would talk about that my boss who is now a mentor of mine and who i love would talk about how when she was on boy meets world and there was a they would talk about the black girl character the room would all turn and look at her uh and every time but she didn't realize this that consciously or unconsciously every time she talked about the gay guy she would turn and look at me and so I knew what my job was there. I planned out his story arc for the season. We executed it. It came out very nicely. Um, and one of this is well, a while ago, and so we were still doing coming out stories on TV. And I was like, okay, well, we'll we did an episode where he was coming out and she was, we are pitching jokes for how his parents are going to react. And she wanted her dad, his dad to call, to say, you know, I love my little fruit loop. And you can't say that like fruit is a slur like that's not a thing you can do and so I'm sitting there I'm a I'm not even a staff writer I'm like I'm the lowest level writer in the room this is my very first show I'm six weeks into this job I really want to keep it um and I'm like hey, so what do I do and what I realized is that you kind of have to pick your battles and so there's stuff that you can push back on and stuff that you can't And you have to decide what you're going to be upset about and what you're not because you can only play the like, I am the thing and therefore you're going to do what I want card a couple of times. And so I played it because I was like, what we're not going to do is like on this TV show, have you, I'm not going to let you embarrass yourself by calling him, by calling him a slur, by having one character call another a slur on TV. And I'm not going to have my name associated with something like that. And so it was very uncomfortable uh, and I pushed back and I did push back, but I think if they risk when they respect you and they and, and you do it in like a sort of limited like like seasoning kind of way, uh, it, it worked. And so they did what I wanted and it worked out great. And I was very happy to have done that. But I've, I've had a number of situations like that. And, and especially as when you get move up in the move up the ladder. It's not like your boss saying it to you. It's the president of the network. It's the there. It's the head of the studio saying, "Hey, would you mind like doing explaining this or pulling this out or doing that thing?" And you just have to decide. Like episode six of Tom Swift, we were doing. If you watch the show, which you can on HBO Max, uh, it is episode six of Tom Swift is like Tom gets kidnapped and there's like a thing that he's put through. It's a series of trials, and so we. And so the network called us up and they said, hey, can we do, we, we don't really like the trials that you come up with for Tom. And Tom is a rich black person. So what if like the trials were like, we subjected him to like things that like, you know, a regular black person might go through, like, you know, like, and you know, they mean like racial profiling and stuff like that. And I was, I was sitting in my car taking this call and my service was bad. And my system was like, you know, she they could barely hear me. And I was like, we're not going to do that. Like, that's not the thing we're going to do. But you have to be able to do it delicately so that they don't get upset with you and continue to give you a TV show. Um, uh, (laughs) And we found a happy middle ground, I think. But we often run up against... Willful or unintentional ignorance that leads to offense that can lead to stereotype can lead to like poor portrayals if you um, if you if, if you leave it unchecked. And I think that the point that Krista and Daniel have made over and over again that I really agree with is that they're going to notice it the other people watching it, white people watching it may not notice the thing, but the black people watching that are like, why did they? Why are they having Tom Swift get racially profiled? Like, why does the Asian guy not get to be, you know, pretty and sexual? Why does the girl have to be quiet and so on? And so you have to, if, if you think about who your audience is, if your audience is people like you who wanna watch the show, then you have to push back on those questions. Otherwise they're gonna know and they're gonna drag you on Twitter and you don't want that.
2: I do just really quick wanna follow up with you Cameron because I- sure did want to ask about that. I watched uh, Tom Swift and as someone who, you know, watches like too many CW shows for a woman in her thirties. Um, mm-hmm. To me, it was striking how different it was from anything I had ever seen on the network. Um, oh, thank you. And, and in a way where I was like, I cannot believe they let him do this <laughs> in a way, which was good. I mean, it's, I mean, it's sad. Yeah. It's a sad reality, but we know network television. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess I was wondering like, how was that navigating? I mean, you kind of just explained an example, but it was it difficult, sort of, navigating that relationship with the network? I believe the CW had, didn't they have a um, like a kind of Black Lives Matter push last year? They had like a ton of well, I mean, they had and... a Black Lives Matter
5: push, and then they said we couldn't say Black Lives Matter. They said we couldn't say things like we couldn't we couldn't say George Floyd, we couldn't say Breonna Taylor. Like it's the same episode. They, they it, it was interesting, and so uh, they what was happening to that network is there's, I basically had two networks. There was the network before it was, the CW was sold to NextStar, and there was the net network after. And so the network before the CW was sold to Nexstar was like, I'm the drama, I have written a lot of network TV. So I wrote for empire. I wrote for, you know, the, I know, I know kind of what that means, what that, what's required of that, what's um, required to do that. And so I know how to do that, but I also knew that they seemed to be hungry for something that was pushing boundaries. Um, and they seemed to be hungry for something that like had a specific voice to it. And so uh, what it was like is there were a lot of moments, um, like that, where I was honestly surprised by the, by what they wanted us to do. So if you think about it, in the Tom Switch pilot, Tom in a moment of weakness, uh, and just being distraught, like sleeps with one, sleeps with some guy at his father's funeral. Shh, it's the repast, It's the reception. It's fine. Um, and that's maybe 20 minutes into the show. And so, in the original version of the dra- of the outline, we started we turned it in the network, and you know my the co-creators that I created the show with were like, oh, he can't do that. Like, he should just kiss the guy and then feel better and then leave. And so we wrote it that way, and I was like, okay, cool. And the network said, shouldn't they just have sex? Like, shouldn't they just do that? Uh, and I was like, yes, yes, uh, Gay Hirsch, I it was an executive. <laughs> I was like, of course we, of course they can do that, no problem. Um, uh, and then it was about finding the balance between how do you write like what you want and how do you do it in a way that the network is going to let you get away with so and the way and then what, what the network was never going to let us get away with is saying things that white people would feel are alienating shall we say now the problem is that you can't i cannot predict what is going to set off someone's like racism alarms like you're like the, with like the you're the real racist button is going to come out so I don't know when that's gonna, I don't know when that's gonna happen. So what we were able to do is that what we were able to do is just like we focused on making this about from the character's point of view, and talking about the challenges that they face, as opposed to like, there's a group of bad people who are trying to hurt you. It's like, this is, there's a group of bad, there's a group of people who, some of whom have a problem with you, some of you, some of them don't, but this is your reaction to it. And we had a lot of interesting and tenuous phone calls about our series villain uh, and stuff like that, where they were like, we want you to dial this back and you have to decide where your lines in the sand are. And for me, my lines in the sand were, I'm not going to do something that's dishonest and I'm not going to, I'm not going to embarrass the character and I'm also not going to like uh, disappoint the people who i'm writing this for like i'm writing this, pe- this this is a show that it is it was the first network tv show to ever be about the life of the black gay man ever period and so it was a and so i was like if that's the people who i'm writing the show for people who want to see that then i have to write things that are going to be authentic to them and they're going to make sense to them and they're going to be special to them and they're going to understand and so the the rest of it in terms of like Letting the characters be friends at the end with, with redeeming villains, stuff like that—like that's okay—that's network TV. But as long as you know, kind of I, when I when I knew what my, my 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 hard lines were, then that was fine. Um,
2: okay, really quick, we have time for I think one. Um, there's an audience question from Ryan. I just uh, oh yeah, Andy it feels
4: oh. like so much of what you're saying, Cameron. It, draws back to what you were talking about what all of you were talking about i think to a degree about experiences at head and the, the code switching necessary at head to um you know i mean it's still uh, obviously a huge reality today but it feels like what those stories you're talking about are, are similar versions um which is you know
5: uh, no it was to- funny there's a Briefly, in two seconds, so Danielle Barnes, Danielle Adams now, who went to, who was my god sister, and we've known each other our entire lives. I refer to Danny as my sister, and i based the character... I based a character, Danny was one of your students, uh, and I based a character on her and my friend Zenzi, uh, who also went to have with me. And so she was, and I kept referring, Tom kept referring to this person as her sister. At one point, the network was just like, so, but are they actually related? Like, or is this, are they cousins? Like, what does that actually look like? And so you had to explain. So like, this can be your aunt, but you're not related to them, which is a very like POC culture. That's very Asian, that's very Latino, it's very black, but not, it's not very um, WASPy. So here we are. Uh, and things like that or the code switching that was required that I, I did learn to
2: master at that risk. Okay, I guess Ryan it's your lucky day. Um, the question is oh, around um, how Hollywood represents the relationships between people of color. Um, Ryan has noticed that you know for example between Asian characters on television or movies and black characters there's a lot of um, animosity a lot of the time on screen. Um, And you know how do you guys experience that? I guess on the actor side, do you see it a lot? Is it something that you notice, or, um, or Cameron? I guess is that something you kind of actively maybe try to work against or work for? Because there is a real conflict sometimes. You know, as we all know, white supremacy is uh, strong, so you know it can be complicated. I think for me, uh,
5: I think what we I'm always trying to tell the truth of a story. So like, I think that there, so when I look at like the way that you portray Asian communities and black communities and uh, Latino communities as working in concert with each other, there is conflict, but there's also like much overlap. And so I, that that I think is much more important to me to focus on and to like explore than like the other, the areas of, of the ways that, uh, Racism has affected all of us because, like, that's not the real villain. The real villain is is racism, and the real villain is white supremacy. So I don't. I, I know that that's a thing that people do. I don't know that it's conscious, but um, I do know that it's not something that I do.
3: In uh, Into the Badlands, we this and this actually wasn't conscious. We just chose the best actress to play my 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 girlfriend and wife, and it happened to be Madeline Montauk, a, a black girl from from England, right? And so then that became a thing though because when the show came out, not many people had seen that an Asian man and a black girl together on screen before. And so we then it became a thing that we're very proud of. And then we actually have a Blasian baby, you know, later on in the show. And these are things that don't normally happen on screen. And it was something that was really enlightening and awesome because it went from a place of just, you know, true uh, innocence and that we just chose the best person for that role and she just happened to be black but then what it opened up was a dialogue and a conversation that um, had never ever really happened before and it was really cool because sometimes yeah, when you, force, when you to... force it it seems like a little icky and this way when you force it, it feels happen. a little icky and it, yeah. i agree
5: wholeheartedly it feels weird but also
3: if you're gonna do that like if we're
5: we had um We have, that's actually what we did on top stuff. Okay, so we were, one of the villains was, the business villain was supposed to be a black woman. And in casting, we got sent a tape of an Asian, of a couple of Asian women. And we decided that this was the best person for the role. And it was going to be super fun. But then as a consequence, we had to, you have to then make it real. Now, fortunately one of the the co-creators was, is an Asian woman and we had other Asian people on staff, but you can't just like swap in, like sort of MS paint someone a color and then have them be the role. (laughs) You have to actually delve into the reality of like, okay, Tom's family would never leave their family company to this woman. And she knows that, and she didn't realize that until today. And now she's mad. Uh, and so, yeah, I think you. As long as you can make it real, I think then you're on your. Then, then it, then it's worth it.
2: Thanks, Cameron. Um, okay, I'm sorry. I think we have to wrap up. The Zoom is going to, um, as I understand it, combust um, like <laughs> a minute. So thank you, everyone, for participating. Um, it was great to meet you slash see you again. And um, Andy, do you have any last words?
4: Just really inspiring to listen to your reflections and. Um... And honestly, we just wanna see your careers keep taking off. I mean, it's just, it's, it um, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's really, really thoughtful. We're really grateful to you for taking the time. And honestly, I, I could keep talking for another hour. I don't know about the rest of you, but um, I find this really, really interesting and really, um, just really thought-provoking. So thank you so much for taking the time. Um, and I was, uh, for, from the teachers, like we just love seeing our alums out there thriving and um, it's, it's lovely.
3: Thank
2: you. Yes, Couldn't Karen, design it without you, I would like to read your Head Voice pilot and my DMs are open. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Head Royce Voices. Stay tuned for more episodes coming soon featuring faculty, students, and of course, alumni. Make sure to subscribe so you know when new episodes come out. Until next time.